0: At the signal, time will be out of joint.
1: Hello, and welcome to Weird Signal, a podcast dedicated to all things eerie, weird and hauntological. I'm Sean, and today I'm joined by Mike Harrison, better known to the world of letters as M. John Harrison. How are you doing on this warm and glowing Tuesday evening? Well,
0: I'm warm and glowing. What more can I say? (laughs)
1: positively radiant positively <laughs> radiant I can feel I can feel the glow coming from my computer monitor indeed uh, as M. John Harrison you're the author of such works as the Viraconium Sequence the Kefahucci Tracked Trilogy dozens upon dozens of short stories and several standalone novels most famously including Climbers and your most recent work includes the Goldsmiths Prize winning novel The Sunken Land Begins to Rise Again and an anti-memoir titled Wish I Was Here so uh we have some questions uh, prepared beforehand obviously and i imagine our conversation will take us on a few pleasant detours. but to we'll begin we'll begin with uh where we are right now you've named your latest book wish i was here an anti-memoir and uh really want to ask me you know, what's in a name what where is here why do you wish you were there and when does a memoir become an anti-memoir well
0: here is here in the world uh, I think, and the, and the title can just as easily be read as Wish I Was Present uh, because the book is partly about being dissociated and, in fact, utilising that rather consciously as a, as a writing strategy. Um, but at the same time, really rather wishing that I could be fully present in the world instead.
1: Uh, mm.
0: Thus wish I was here. Um of course there are deliberate ambiguities in a title like that. Uh and there are places in the book dream estates uh where I'd I'd like to be, obviously. Any 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 piece of rock in the Peak District.
1: <laughs> um I want to come back to to a few things you said there, but before I do I want to ask Again, uh, when is a memoir an anti memoir? Why anti-memoir?
0: This is a deliberate sort of reference to, to the anti-novel, the French the French anti-novel of the nineteen fifties and sixties, uh, which was designed to ask to 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 question everything that a novel did, that a classical novel did, um, and to ask whether it was necessary to do it or or even any fun to do it, as it were, and could there be other ways that a novel uh, might be written? Uh, <clears throat> so, it's a, a reference to that and, and, and it invites the reader to think in terms like those and to sort of what, what you would, there, there are obviously five or six major fundamental assumptions that you could question in a novel why do we do it like this? Uh, seems to me there are two basic ones for a memoir. One is, why do we do it like this? The second is what is memory anyway? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And if you've got a really bad memory, which I've been blessed with since I was about two years old, um, then that's not an easy question to get an answer to, you know, Um, Mm. my solution to having a really bad memory from, from, from the point at which I decided to be a writer was to take copious notes, you know, I was so jealous of people like Virginia Woolf, who had almost eidetic memories, um, and, and therefore never needed to take notes of conversations because they could just, you know, bring them up on the screen as it were, um. But I decided to write notes, and by the time I was 60 or 70 years old, I had 220,000 words that I could um, that I could interrogate. Uh, but I had to ask myself, and the book asks, "Is that memory?" And of course it isn't. The moment you mm. the moment you look at those notes, you're looking at fictions. There isn't any doubt about it
1: it's it's almost as if um through the act of writing you were trying to establish yourself in presence it sounds like as well as in memory
0: yes i think i think both are true um i think uh, a conscious attempt to look at the world is an is a conscious also a conscious attempt to have a self that is looking at the world mm-hmm. um, to it's a, an act of construction as much as a an attempt at observation, um, and as a child, I was extremely, extremely dozy, extremely uh, daydreamy. And what I liked most of all was landscape. Even at, at an early, at, you know, a really early age, I would simply stare at a landscape or an object for quite a long time. Um, And that became my, I guess that became my generator of the self, you know, at an early age.
1: Hmm. That that takes me to something um, I wanted to ask based based on the uh, the first comment you made there in response to this question, which was you said that uh, this book is dealing with um, being uh disassociated and absent, rather than fully present but what would for you uh what would it mean to be fully present
0: i don't know (laughs) in fact i decided to ask the book that i think it says somewhere the book actually says you know i don't know who i I didn't know what i was so i decided to ask the book
1: Um, um
0: And I think that's a generalised comment too. I think every book I've ever written was an attempt to, to ask that question, what am I? Or at, the, at, at, the, at, the, at its most normative or normal, what am I now? Who am I now? As it's cut down, uh, mm. an extension of the, of, of the question, what do I think? What do I think at the moment? You know, if I construct myself by thinking about things, what am I thinking about now? What shall I write about?
1: Would you, do you have a, do you have an answer of some kind for that, for, for that, to that question right now? Though, who are you right now? I've
0: never, never had an answer to that question, other than I'm the book we're talking about at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and, and actually anything I say here about that book will be less than that book. Yeah. You know, um, this idea of trying to sum up a book in a line, uh, it's like, why would I do, why would I write a book if I could do that? <laughs> if, I, <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I could, if I could sum up what it was about now in, in, you know, two or three lines, why would I have written it in the first place? um for some writers the book is them you know and and that book is me now that that's my that's my latest
1: assessment <laughs> as it were. um moving on to the to the second question i have here in front of me um hauntology the big age hauntology is arguably uh, an abused term somewhat these days but it's also a term that you've used you've, you've used rather to describe something uh, your own work is engagement with nominally it's uh, a focus of this podcast all things weirder in hauntological so what does what does hauntology mean in for the work of M John Harrison? Why is it and, and related to that, this is a, a, a line that, a, a remark I'm borrowing from which I was I wish I was here um, why is it you describe uh, all stories as ghost stories?
0: Yeah I'm not sure all the stories are ghost stories uh, but they all seem to me to be stories of ghosts. Hmm. I think that makes a distinction uh, because I think that what you're saying when you say that, is that we're all ghosts. Um, we haunt the world. Um, I felt for a long time that the world haunted me. That I was sort of haunted by, if nothing else, by simply by the amount of stuff in the world which needed a response from me, um, or which seemed to need a, an urgent response from me, an acknowledgement almost. Um, and then I was walking up Stoke Newington High Street one day and it was empty. Uh, in fact it was so empty it reminded me of a Charles Williams novel um, or a surrealist painting. And I suddenly realised it was the other way around, that all along it had been me who was doing the haunting. Uh, and that relates back to this whole idea of dissociation. Um, I think the dissociated, among writers at least, haunt... Let me put that another way. The people who are dissociated to a degree haunt the world the way that writers haunt their own work. They hang about in corners of it. You know, looking at it from a different angle, um, which can be quite a shock if you if you find them there, uh, I think. Given that my work is is me, that I identify as my own work, as I've just said to you, you know, the book is... If you ask me who I am now, I, I tell you. this. I offer you the book. This is the book. This is what I am now. Um, then, if that's the case, then clearly the work somehow also haunts me. Uh, my fuzzy construction of the world as a human being, as a person, is based on an equally fuzzy construction of the person who might construct a world to be in. Uh, and then both of them wrap round the work and into the work which in turn wraps its way around them. You can't escape <laughs> uh, from from that kind of haunting. I'm aware that this doesn't connect directly to hauntology in a strict sense. You know, now I, I noticed that you used the word the words weird and eerie earlier on, and I think yes, that's... in fact in a sense I'm describing being an author of the weird. Rather than an author of the hauntological, it's yeah. just that hauntings cross over, don't they?
1: <laughs> it's because the, um, where that phrase comes from in the in the opening spiel of the podcast, which has opened every episode of this podcast, weird, eerie, and hauntological. Where the weird and eerie comes from, it comes from, of course, the the name of uh, the title of Mark Fisher's yeah. last book, uh, the Weird and the Eerie, and um and it's been a very long time since uh, since uh i've read that book but yes the one thing that um when it comes one of the themes that is that is present present throughout that book is indeed presence itself uh weirdness being if i remember correctly weirdness referring to these moments of an overabundance of sheer presence of a kind of grotesque of the grotesquery of um the overabundance of being while eeriness refers to failures of presence um and the hauntological Arguably, therefore, it has more to do with has more to do with um, but the eerie with the sense of the failure of presence. But at the same time, the you know the appearance of the ghost of the thing out of time is still uh, an occurrence of the overabundance of presence. It is uh, you know the failure the failure of presence through the overabundance of presence rather than through yeah. a um a shifting about of absences. Uh, and on the the note of disassociation, actually, um. Just to um, refer back, refer to my own experiences, actually, because I've, I've I've attempted a few times to write short pieces of fiction, which I've never been very satisfied with. But but my my primary creative outlet is photography, which I find a, a greatly satisfying uh, hobby to engage with and creative action to engage with as well. And I had a moment a few uh, some weeks ago when I was on um, Brighton seafront, which is where I live, uh, with he- headphones on, camera out. Just, just trying, just trying to take pictures of um, families milling around the cafe, and I had a moment of wishing, just very deeply, that I was totally invisible and totally intangible to the world around me. Uh, indeed, of becoming a ghost, yeah. really, yeah. of of having yeah. that, of having that, of of being there simply to to haunt and to observe and to, in a, se- a sense, with the photographic ap- action, with the action of writing um capturing some some trace of trace of my own haunting, maybe yeah how do you how do you feel about photography actually just a, just on a, a passing remark uh i feel
0: without knowing anything about photography as um as a discipline or a genre or a form or a mode or a method uh i i regret that i am not able to be a camera the the moment I read that, the Isherwood line, the famous Isherwood line, um, I thought, oh, wow, yes. You know, what a, what a pity we can't do that, Christopher. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, what a pity that everything we do is to, is to construct and to editorialize, not to actually just photograph. Um, I like the idea of um, a photograph being an indexical sign of its subject. The idea that the light rays in an old-fashioned photograph, you know, actually bounced off the the subject um, and onto the uh, emulsion. Uh, um. I like the idea that there you've actually saved something of, of some originating incident, some actual thing that happened in the world, as it were. Um, and I started one of the... One of the reasons I started to take notes was, or rather, to keep them and to uh, cherish them and to be, begin to bolt them together into things that were bigger than the notes themselves. Was I had a friend called Judith Clute who was a painter, uh, and she would she lived in Camden and she would go around at the weekend photographing typical denizens and, and inhabitants of Camden um, to use as the basis of, of, of paintings. And I suddenly thought, what if I did that? How cool, you know? Let's go out and photograph people. And so I, I it's difficult to photograph people in a busy street, but, but much easier in a cafe if you're a writer. You know you set up shop with a with a couple of um academic looking books and a notepad and uh, look as if you're doing some work and actually you're writing down everything you hear (laughs) every single uh every single conversation that you can pick up or tune into Um, I, i like photography i like the idea i'm aware that it's not possible for me to do from my discipline but you know i'd like to be able to
1: so moving ever swiftly onwards especially but not limited to climbers landscape plays a, if it, i mean this is such an understatement what i've written here landscape plays a huge role in your work but but given the way things are how How can we write about and and by we I think I really mean us the British us us on this on this rainy archipelago? How can we write about and think about landscape without collapsing into sentimentality and into reactionary cliches and politics? Is there a way that we can rescue the countryside from little Englander ideology?
0: I don't know whether there is, but but my attempt, uh, again, particularly with reference to climbers, but also the the new book, um, which tries to confront some of what you've just said. Um, My rule is to to write down what you see, what you see, what you hear. As you, not as an expert on acorns um, or the strata of the Jurassic Coast, not as an expert of anything, but what you see as a person, um, that enables you to be, your observation to be personally oriented, experiential. Rather than coming out of the discourse, any kind of discourse, whether it be, say, as you say, a Little England discourse or a a right-wing discourse, what I want to do is to eliminate as much as I possibly can any kind of standardised discourse, that I might have picked up. This comes partly from a hatred of being educated when I was like eight, you know? I didn't want to be told how to see things, you know? I wanted to see what I could see in front of me. Um, seeing was already massively important to me, not just as landscape, but as like a puddle with some shrimps in it. It was like, it was a massive need that I had to, to, to crouch in front of that for two hours. With wet knees, just watching what happened. Um, but but I think that the problem with all kinds of writing that are that are based on that impulse is that across a person's life, they quickly become part of a, whatever standardised discourse that person has learnt. Um, and I, you know i would i would risk my and i do every day risk what 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 i what i write being seen as completely subjective solely to get that experiment experiential feeling across in the work climbers is not written by a climber i was very careful to write it and to hold it in that position where you're just beginning to learn a discipline, where it's exciting to learn, it's uh, easy to learn because there's so little you know, um, but at the same time you have not bought the bill of goods, you've not bought the standardised view of what climbing is, you are still open uh, to what it is for you. and 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 your your job then, as far as I'm concerned, is to maintain that personal understanding because that's what led you to be a climber in the first place, or a writer or somebody who races bicycles or whatever. Um, what what the impulse that led you there in the first place is purely subjective, and it's worth hanging on to, I think that's what you've got as a writer. I think, as any kind of artist, in the end, that's what you've got to offer. is a is a kind of experiential view of things.
1: Hmm. I'm curious if you've and uh, this this was something that occurred to me quite a while ago. Actually, something I'd love to ask you if you've read ever read Gerald Murnay, the Australian writer.
0: I haven't. No, I've heard of him. Obviously, you know, um, <laughs> if you're on Twitter, you can't not. And I. You can't have. <laughs> I have a couple of friends who are really big fans of his but I have not yet got round to him I will in the end
1: Yeah I I will uh, I will resist Uh, I will resist making the hard sell, as I have done to other people of of the importance of reading Gerald Murnane, Uh, although I will do the hard sell to you, listeners, listeners to the podcast who at this moment in time are just a possibility, a potentiality. Go out and buy the works of Gerald Murnane, uh, a fantastic, a fantastic writer, but only after you've bought Everything You Can Find by M. John Harrison, of course. the reason the reason I mention Murdenine though is because and, and why I associated him very strongly with your work is because of that is because of not so much subjectivity at least not what I've read of of him uh, and there's still a lot of his work I haven't read but in particular his devotion to description and in in hint his 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 major novel the novel that um, anyone who's read Gerald Murdenine has read is the is uh, the planes. Which is a a belligerent work of pure description, really, and of pure imaginative description of um, of imagining this. Uh, it's not a, it's not a science fiction novel. It did apparently begin life as a science fiction novel that went through some uh, some hefty editing, but just describing this very very aesthetically sophisticated culture that dwells within the the inner plains of Australia, and it being simply. The, the whole book simply being describing, describing the lives of the Plainsmen, describing their heraldic symbolism, describing their uh, competing aesthetic philosophies and where and how these turn to violence and so on. But um, with Murnane, though, there is this um, sense of, I think I put this once that uh, on Twitter maybe, that uh, Murnane really wants to try and describe how a shaft of light fell through a bathroom window on the 7th of october in 1971 yeah he really wants to describe that that immediacy that almost that the zen-like sheer experiential moment and that is something that i've always felt uh in your books as well a yeah. a, a, a devotion to trying to to capture and the the inherent and and that and this is subjective this is in well, I don't, subjective feels like a dirty word but it is per it is personal there's there's a and in trying to articulate the personal you can't help but eventually brush up against what we might in some sense call the mystical but i don't mean that in the necessarily in a religious or supernatural sense but just that sense of the wittgensteinian sense of coming up against the limits of expression. Yeah, that uh, I will never I will never be able to express exactly what it felt like when I was watching raindrops passing through a beam of light for, coming from a, a street light back in 2013. Uh, after like the third date I went out with, with someone or something like that, like which is some which is something just burned into my memory just because of the the way the raindrops were falling. That it's it's that's what I find one of the things I find so appealing in, in, in your writing. And um, and that's something that Murnane does as well. So uh, yes, I will. I will. Jo- I will join the chorus of people uh, suggesting you might quite like to check out Gerald Murnane. Uh, Um
0: This, I mean, this is so. This is very familiar to me. Uh, I think there is, in fact, a, a couple of paragraphs early on in "In Wish I Was Here," which basically say what you've just said, um, only in a in, in terms of huge regret. You know, that um, that not having the bandwidth. Uh, in writing um, that you that you've got in photography say um, you you very quickly run up against the impossibility of photographing anything using words you know word, words don't they can't do that they don't do that and they that in a way that's I mean, It's very unsatisfactory, but at the same time, it forces you into looking for other ways of making a description stick, as far as the reader's concerned, Uh, your thrust towards metaphor uh, and techniques of that sort. Um, But in the end, there is this, even at getting on for 80 years old, there's still this regret that you couldn't simply photograph cigarette smoke rising from a cigarette when you were 17 because that's what you wanted to do you wanted to be able to describe it so um you're right i will read my name obviously
1: (laughs) perfect thank i i i will take that as a personal victory um moving on moving on uh at the at the time climbers was published and i and i'll be honest i'm taking this information straight from wikipedia at the time climbers was published you said you didn't plan to write any more science fiction but what we get after climbers is the kefahuchi Tract trilogy which is not only simply the best science fiction i've ever read but also just among the best fiction that's been published in this country since the war um why did you return to science fiction with the Kefahuchi Tract uh, trilogy? And I actually have a couple of follow-on questions that I will ask after you've answered that question.
0: Cool. Um, I think the simplest way to answer that is to say that I didn't return to science fiction. Not, not the way the sheep returns to the fold, as it were. What happened was that I had finally succeeded in appropriating it. To my own ends, uh, and squaring a circle, which I thought, which I thought was impossible. You know, I thought that I wouldn't be able to put fantastic fiction or imag imaginative fiction to collide it sufficiently. or dovetail it sufficiently cleverly with what you might call literary fiction. Uh, I didn't think that would be possible. And then suddenly I saw a way to do it. And that way was essentially to relax and say, we will not call this anything. We are not going to call this anything. We are just going to write it down on the page. And we will then leave it to other people to call it what they want to call it. Um, and that relaxed me uh so, so prior to climbers, I'd been engaged in this kind of like life or death struggle with fantastic fiction fantastica imaginative fiction um which was like a fight to the death as far as I was concerned one of us going one of us you know two <laughs> two of us had entered and one would leave um and I think the other thing that climbers taught me was that I couldn't win, that what I could simply do was to refocus. Um, I was already capable of writing completely mainstream work, all observationally based as as we've discussed. I, I already knew how to do it. Um, All I needed to do was to commit to a very considerable degree to a piece of work. Um, And that's partly why Climbers got written. It got written to prove to me that I could commit to a piece of work that was not in any way describable as imaginative fiction. Um, Once you've done that, you've made your end run around the thing that was in the way. You've just you know, gone into left field and run around the end of it all. Um, And quite suddenly, I realised that I'd taken charge of my own narrative at that point. Um, and And that meant something else, which was that as long as I continued to use those techniques, and as long as I continued to try and master those kinds of techniques, Then it wouldn't matter what I did. I could write about buses if I wanted to. You know? I could write a book about buses.
1: I could write. God willing, you shall, because that sounds fantastic.
0: (laughs) Um, I looped away into non fiction to write climbers, basically. It's much more influenced by autobiographies. And my study of autobiography from Isherwood onwards, Um, and this whole idea of life writing. And uh, I mean, the the utter fascination that you have as a beginning climber with climbers' memoirs, which are essentially totally non fictional. Um, you, You move away from the fantastic by writing about that which is here, that which is in front of you, and uh, by solving that problem that that we were just talking about, this whole idea of trying to write things down, get them down, get them photographed, you know? Um, Mm. So, having taken charge of my own narrative or my own self-description as a writer, rather than allow the genre to make that description of me, um, meant that I didn't have to tell the science fiction story. I didn't have to tell the hero's journey story. Um, I didn't need a plot or a narrative because essentially work that isn't fiction doesn't need that. (laughs) If you're essentially writing nonfiction, which you've described, which you've disguised as as, as fiction, um, you d- you don't need all of that fictional baggage. So at that point, the problem of who I was or what my identity was became other people's problem, not mine. Um, and and that's the way I like to put it now, is that you know, anyone who has a problem with me being Possibly a science fiction writer, or possibly a not a science fiction writer. That's their problem. It's not mine. Uh, I will mm-hmm. continue to do what I do. Um, if I want to write something that's like the Kefauver trilogy, I'll do it. Um, but it'll be no more sci-fi than it is litfic. Um, it'll be a, th- a novel by M. John Harrison.
1: These the two subsequent questions I have here, which maybe feel slightly redundant following that answer, uh, but I will ask all the same. Actually, um, and they do relate specifically to this thing called the genre science fiction. What are the potentials, do you think, for science fiction now? And do you think now? Do you think it makes any sense for us to talk about genre distinctions in the first place? I mean I mean this more of as a general question than necessarily yeah. in relation to your own work.
0: It makes no sense to me and as a um, as a critic, with my critic's hat on rather than my kind of novelist's hat on, it makes no sense to me generally, because my theory of fiction is simply that, you know, writers do what they want and readers read what they want, and that's that and that basically slapping a label on it is nothing to do with us. It's really a publishing thing. Um, but I can't speak on behalf of the genre. Um, especially if, if, it, if it's a, seen as a division of local government that employs me. A, a writer is not employed on behalf of a genre. A writer is a writer is a writer. Um, So I I can't speak, I can only speak on behalf of what I do. Um, This is an argument that I learned from Christopher Priest. Um, Chris said to me a long time ago, look Mike, you know, we write our own books. I I, uh, I have a friend called Jim Perrin, who was a very good climber, um, way back when, um, who was probably for six months, one summer, uh, the best climber in the world and he used to take me out and I'm a crap climber and I would be sobbing at the bottom of something that i had failed to climb and Jim would come up and he would say Mike this climb doesn't belong to anybody else I knew the guy who put this climb up Mike and he sat at the bottom sobbing <laughs> on several occasions when he was failing to get up it. it's not his climb anymore it's yours And I think that's, uh, I think whenever I write a book now, if I feel like sobbing, I tell myself that basically, this is your book, it's not anybody else's book. I'm not responsible to anybody else. There's no, uh, I'm not going to be tested on my work at the end of the year. Uh, It's not like that, you know. It's a more grown up thing where you do a thing and you do it and that's that, it's your choice. So no, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think it's possible for me to say anything about what the potential for the sci-fi genre is.
1: Throughout your works, and this is one of the things that fascinates me the most about what you do, throughout your works, trash and ephemera, uh, which often literally trash, but, um, in, but sometimes simply broken pieces of conversation and just passing inanities, they are all often... T- often feature prominently. I've written yet another understatement in my notes. For example, like, The Zone in Saldages is full of just trash. Uh, Anna finds trash from the future and the past in her garden shed. So, really, just, just w- why trash? Why trash? Uh,
0: it's not always the same. Uh, it doesn't always occupy the same place. It, it's not always doing the same thing. I mean, I'm attracted to trash because I kind of like it. But also, it seems to me to be a great way of, of, of symbolising the way we put lives together. You know? We collect, mm. we collect things. Um, we when you're young, you you buy things almost the way you might try and take a photograph to remember a moment, you know, this stuff automatically becomes, and I think in fact, wrongly, we soon begin to think of it, it automatically becomes and we soon begin to think of it as kitsch or trash or uh, whatever, but actually there was a moment when it was not just wildly alive for you, but it was also, it also became a component and it will remain a component of the life that you are. Um, so that when you look at it 30 years later, because it falls out of the drawer and you you look at it and and nostalgia washes over you, that is why nostalgia in its, as it were, true form, it's not kitsch at all, it's a real thing, it's a real thing that happens to you. Um, so to, to the degree that I think a lot of novels, a lot of novelising comes from an impulse we can't avoid, which is, which is that wash of contact with, a, with an earlier self. Um, so they're there because of that. But also, like the snippets of conversation that you mention, for instance, um, which I've described picking up in cafes or on the tops of buses or, or wherever, when they appear in the fiction, they're always there for an actual purpose, uh, either to add depth to the scene or to add a certain kind of depth that I've selected that I want to add to the scene or to the story overall. Um, they also act as uh, kind of sly cueing or framing devices so that the they, the, the apparently Pointless appearance of a piece of dialogue in a scene cannot but act, act as a act as a cue or a frame to the reader. Um, everything that appears in a scene, the reader tries to make something of it. Yeah, and mm. you can you can manipulate that as the writer and and and. So that those kinds of bits, bits and pieces of apparently irrelevant dialogue are not irrelevant at all. They're there to um, to act as to frames or guides, guide, guide, like those um like those lines on hospital floors, hospital corridor floors that you follow to get from place to place. They do that, but in a quiet and um, surreal kind of a way. Um, Trash, as it appears, say in the Kefauveri tract, is a symbol for the outright symbol for the meaningless products of capital. You know, the the the, the, the entire universe is full of trash, and trash is spouting out of the of the Kefuhushi tract as well. Everything is, is is That trilogy is a satire of consumerdom. At that level oh yes um, and and because of that I think that's a very simple you know that's a very easily uh, understood uh, symbol uh, but it, it it's also direct subject matter especially again in the Kefehuchi track novels um, as well as any technical function they might have or any political Symbolism, they might hold. I like the idea of reigns of objects. <laughs> I like the idea of random rains of objects, and and I decided to make them a feature of the world. It the way you would in any other act of world building, you know. They that's they say to the reader: this is the way this world is. You know, it's prone to sudden rains of objects. <laughs> And frankly, you'd better get used to that because there's going to be more, <laughs> to be more of it. Um, these objects and their sudden presence or absence is, is a feature of this world, just as rocks or cars or jobs are features in the world of climbers. You know, they're just things that are there. And and as a reader, you're going to negotiate the landscape. You're going to have to learn that these are the kinds of things that happen in it. Um, basically hmm. in wish I was here objects are almost always discussed as repositories of identity and meaning and in fact the text explains that I think on a couple of occasions when you put your objects in storage it says your your furniture or your pictures or your bits and pieces 300 books you you don't know whether you want or not. You're putting yourself in storage. Yes. You're um, you're also putting yourself away in that Japanese sense of tidying yourself up, tidying your environment up. Um, and I, I just think that that's a great metaphor or a great symbol for how you make and manage some sort of identity to get yourself through the world uh, via objects. Um.
1: Hmm. So I was uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was on holiday in Lisbon and I was in a great big, huge uh, shopping center called uh, Columba, I think it was. And I was looking in the bookshops to see if I could find a Portuguese translation of Nova Swing by Anjon Harrison. The reason for this, of course, being, uh, I, I real, I'm just re- realising now how, how cruel this is to anybody listening who hasn't read this book. But uh, well, you ought to read it. So there you go, listener. Um, because, of course, the city, the city that, that Nova Swing is set in is called, well, I, as I read it, as as I pronounced it when I read it, uh, saudade, though my Brazilian friend told me it's saudage, uh, is how it should be pronounced. And that's a word which the conventional translation for it would simply be nostalgia. Uh, although my friend insisted that wouldn't really quite capture yeah. what saudage means. So my question to you is, uh, has Nova Swing been translated into Portuguese? And into what would the word saudage be translated uh, if it were?
0: Do you know... It hasn't. Um, oh damn! <laughs> but, but we must bring that about as soon as possible. Um, I would think. Uh, I have no idea. I I loved it because because of this um, this edge of untranslatability that it has, that it is isn't simple nostalgia. That that it has, among its other possibilities, a a kind of nostalgia for that which you've never had to be nostalgic about. I like that aspect of a possible definition. But for me, it was a, a nice little joke that pointed the reader in, in exactly those directions and exactly to that difficulty of, of translation and definition. Um, so that makes your suggestion even cleverer than it seems. I mean, what would it what? what, what <laughs> what happens when you do that? <laughs> when you translate <touch>, like, something <laughs> away from and then back into a language? Um,
1: yeah. we'll we'll, we'll start uh, right after this call. We'll start a Kickstarter. Yeah. Uh, to get the Portuguese the Portuguese translation of uh, Nova Swing and only Nova <laughs> Swing, not the other two. Just just yeah. to really enhance the strangeness of it. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it would be
0: a complete standalone which yeah, I think it could
1: do yeah you know it does yes yes it it does it um i mean all i mean uh light and empty spaces obviously share characters in common but no the swing which i think was why when i first because it took me a couple of attempts to to read it and i think that's why i bounced off it first time round actually because it 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 is a very different it's a very different beast to uh light in within some ways but not in others um although, although that being said empty spaces shares characters in common with nova swing as well but um but yes anyway um, i don't
0: think you did, can did I? I don't think you can read empty space without having read both of the others and in that order you know no nova swing introduces concepts that 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 are going to be utterly central um uh, in empty space and also um empty space then becomes utterly central in um, showing the reader how Nova Swing and Light related, you know? Mm. So that to me, uh, at the moment, I'm very concerned to get those three into one volume.
1: I was going to ask this because I remember yeah. seeing you tweet about it.
0: Yeah. I would very much like to get them into one volume under a single title um, so that they... Are shown to be the three parts of of a of a single much larger entity. Um, uh, I I know that individually they're they're as it were difficult books, and that that putting the three together would probably make one very difficult book. Um, but it, it, it's got to be done. I'm afraid. <laughs> 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 it, 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 um, not only because of their density. I've got to say this that you know essentially I don't. They're not that difficult compared to Finnegans Wake, <laughs> you know.
1: No, um, there are moments in that. Uh, there are moments in light as well where the, um, well, I hate to use this word, but where uh, um, slightly more conventional genre events start occurring, where and it feels almost like the camera pulls back and you just felt like you're just enjoying yourself, just describing, for example, the um the industrial, the, you know, how the um, the planet of New Venus port is sort of like, divide, you know, sort of the divisions into, uh, yeah. into residential and industrial areas and so on. And uh, uh, the, right, the encounter with the, um, and, and just, and the, um, oh, who are the aliens in it? The Wasp aliens, what are they called?
0: Uh, the Nastic. The,
1: the Nastic and so on. <laughs> we well, have these moments where you just, it feels sort of pleasantly like just indulging in some, Bit of good old-fashioned sci-fi writing and those moments in light acted almost for me reading it as uh, as little breathing spaces where i could just collect myself before returning to these you know intensely troubling narratives about intensely troubled individuals uh passing through passing through the universe um sure to say it's a very good book and uh, uh everyone should read it again that's a w- weird signal stamp of approval uh, um <laughs> Curious, just before, before we move on to our last couple of questions, because I'm, I'm mindful of uh, mindful of time, where, where did the word, where did the name Kefahoochee come from? Because it's such a wonderful, just euphonically, such a pleasant word. How did uh, that come about?
0: This, this is where we learn the truth. The truth is that one of my favourite Mot the Hoople songs is Honolulu Boogie. And when I wrote the notes for Light, it was called the Honolulu tract. And then I looked at it and I thought, You can't do that, Mike. <laughs> 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 you really can't do that. So like we'll make up a word that sounds the same. And after a few attempts, Kefuchi was what I got. I wanted to I wanted I wanted to keep the ending of the word. I wanted to have that rhythm. Um but that's where it came from. Honolulu Boogie.
1: Um, I mean, because
0: this. that all those three books are so dependent on on rock and roll music over you know fifty or sixty years of of pure. I don't think you can have the 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 deep satire of of Earth military contracts uh, and that kind of capitalism unless unless it has a rock and roll soundtrack uh
1: we might even see if we can drop that in as the uh the credits music of this episode uh we'll see if we see if we can get away with that so um the last the the last three questions uh, we have here uh and the these are the uh me having a little bit of fun here because these are cru- these are slightly cruel questions but um have you ever seen the ghost
0: I haven't. Uh, I don't really believe in them in that sense. I think they're a massively good all-purpose symbology. Ghosts and everything to do with ghosts. is a massively, it's just a vehicle for every metaphor in the universe, you know? But I can't say I actually believe in them in that sense. Ontological ghosts, there are millions of them. You can see them every time you go outside your door and sometimes inside, you know. Um, real ghosts, I don't know about.
1: My second to last question, penultimate question, uh, and I will only accept a yes or no answer. Uh, Mike Harrison, is there a god?
0: No, but.
1: (laughs) What's the but? What's the but?
0: The but is that I won't give up on the metaphysical experience of of the universe. I won't give up on it. Um, I, I wouldn't want there to be a God in any classic sense. But if if somebody showed me that the universe was... No, I'm not going to put it like that. Complexity theory and and fractality and various other things and and the idea of emergence from... uh, Events at another level or relations at another level, um, made me wonder if you could describe the universe as a as a word in a language, um, which has got the obvious, you know, makes the obvious <laughs> reference to in the beginning was the word. Um, i I don't need any, with emergence theory, with with physics as it is now, as it's constituted now, or as it was constituted up until about 20 years ago, the universe could be a word without having to be spoken by anything. And that's my but. If it turned out to be that, I'd be so happy. <laughs> you know, a word that speaks itself. What more can you ask?
1: Well, the the universe, of course. Well, of course, as we learn from the religions of the East, the universal the universal syllable is Om, and that seems like well, a rather lovely way, of maybe, of trying to capture that, to capture the meaning of that word, of that untranslatable word. It is it is the sound of the universe speaking itself, Om. Um, my, in fact, I'm going to ask one more question before we get to the very final question. Um, is Mike Harrison M. John Harrison?
0: No. Um, and again, the Wish uh, I Was Here uh, concludes by briefly having uh, having a look at that as an idea. Um, M. John Harrison is, is very constructed uh, as the product of, of the books In a sense, they aren't by M. John Harrison. They produce M. John Harrison. Hmm. Yeah? Mike Harrison is a lot more difficult to find and a lot more... When I was seven, the only ambition I had was to be more articulate than adults because I always lost arguments with them because I couldn't be articulate and I had a desperate need to, f- to feel as articulate or more articulate than adults. Um, M. John Harrison is the product of that, which is partly why I'd hoped to write a book in which he wasn't present, in which he wasn't in a sense produced by the book. I failed at that. Wish I was here is as much him, John Harrison as anything else I've ever written, unfortunately. Um, I can't kind of unglue myself from him. But I would absolutely love to just be a person. And that goes back to what we said right at the beginning. You know, this idea of... of um, there is a massive difference between... being alive and being a producer of discourse, especially if it's about yourself, you know? Um, I, would, I would like to have been kind of wholly experientially focused you know, if that was possible, I knew climbers who were that. They didn't really; they were only alive. <laughs> they weren't anything else. They were just alive. <laughs> um, I sometimes think of this in terms of kind of terrorist awareness. Um, I always seem to be on a terrace above the above what I really am, what whatever core is mike harrison i always seem to be looking down from a terrace and able to describe um, or at least construct you know
1: my final question and this is the terrible question you should never ask a writer or creative of any kind is where do you get your ideas from i've actually got an answer to this Um... oh brilliant (laughs) I really don't
0: like to write from an idea or, or develop an idea. Uh, I think that that's for science fiction. Uh, I think it's for conceptual fiction. And I think it's for science journalism. Uh, what I prefer to start with is an image of some kind. It should proceed either from the unconscious or... Uh, or a consciously managed unconscious imaginary, uh, which is at this point stuffed with 70 years of cultural input, or it should be appropriated from, from the world directly, as directly as I can manage. That's why it's more interesting for me to write climbers than it is to write light, because climbers is 100% observed from life, yeah, Um, or appropriated from life. You know, I'm not ashamed of that. (laughs) Um, Also, if I appropriate people from life, behaviors from life, landscapes from life, I don't need to have an idea about them. I just start with things that I've seen and heard. Even the even the opening scene of light, if you recall, it opens at a dinner, an academic dinner in the Midlands. And it's a it's a it's a b it's a New Year's Eve dinner and really it just um reproduces the conversation of the people around the dinner table. Um until something horrific happens to to close that scene and to open the book. Um, That happened. I didn't have to make that up. It happened. I was there, you know. I may even have said some of those things.
1: Uh... Presumably you didn't. Proceed to kill someone. No, I didn't. Uh, I didn't. I didn't cause...
0: proceed into the in, into the following horrific act, as it were. But uh, the what I'm trying to say is that you don't need an idea to make a scene like that. All you need to do is to be alive and 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 not have a tin ear. You must have a good ear for what you for what you listen to, and and a good ear for reproducing it as well. I think a, a lot of writers will fall down between those two. Um, writers do tend to write what they think they heard or what they would prefer to have heard. You've got to listen to what was actually said. You really have. Um, that's why a tape recorder is, a, is, a, is better than your head. <laughs> <laughs> for that kind of thing. Um, but. The whole of light proceeds from that conversation. And if you look at the last uh, line of light, two words, is it two words? In capital letters.
1: I have. I happen to have light right to hand, actually. Read,
0: read the last two words.
1: The beginning.
0: Yeah. That isn't to say... This is the beginning as opposed to the end. This is to say, go back to the beginning and if you go back to the beginning, you'll find that these two scenes are massively parallel with one another
1: well I should i I shall do that once right after we're off this call actually I'm very very intrigued to see what I've see what I've lost because one, one thing I'm terrible for is not I don't often read but reread books i have a i have a plunging thirst for novelty which always leads me to having to find something new something new to read so it's not so it's off so when the stuff stuff like poetry or short fiction is it is a different matter but it's very it's not i don't often go back and reread a novel just because i have to have to feed the the more um but i'm i'm rather tempted to (laughs) revisit revisit, that's why we uh, have the word novel (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There's no need Me shame. novelty, sir. mere novelty. Yes, exactly.
0: There's, there's no. There's no need to feel shame. You know, that's what a novel was devised for. Um, I think, but um, I can't stop myself from from making books that, w- that would improve if you read them twice. <laughs> um, it, it was it Eco who said that basically novels want to live? That, that writing wants to live. That that, that 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 and and if you want your book to live, you should you should make the reader read it again and again and again and again. <laughs> again. <laughs> to try and work it out.
1: Mm. <laughs> well, but maybe 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 indeed I shall do that. I've had uh is somewhat tangential, but I've had an idea wrapping my around in my head for a while of starting a new podcast. Where I, because my favourite writer when I was a teenager was Ian Banks, who uh, I know that you were, that you knew, and okay. I met him once, exactly once, when he came to the University of East Anglia where I was studying and did a little in conversation thing, a little signing thing. So I got to say hello and very shakily tell him how much I enjoyed his books and shake his hand and all of that. Lovely man. But I have I have been tempted uh to do that to start start a podcast where i just go back and i reread um all of his books most of his non most of his literary fiction i haven't read i've only read um a couple of his literary fiction but i've read all of his science fiction and uh the, the podcast would be called knife missile if i did that because it's just one of the most wonderful names any piece of science fiction technology has ever had uh <laughs> so perhaps perhaps i'll do that perhaps i'll fold in fold uh, in uh, the keppahoochee tract uh, sequence into that project if if it ever does happen
0: <laughs> excellent well thank you very much that was a great thank affair. you a thank you very
1: much um, I will um, yes well, Um do you want to we have a little sign off that we do in the podcast would you like to help me out with it go on um, would you like to say uh, so the sign off is one of us says until next time stay weird and the other one says keep it signal would you like to say keep it signal keep it signal it's a so I say stay weird and you say and keep it signal it's completely it nonsensical signal. but signal as in yeah. weird signal yeah
0: yes. got you got you okay
1: right all right <clears throat> well uh, thank you thank you thank you thank you so much for coming on and giving us giving us your time this has been uh, like uh, th- th- yeah this has been such a thing for me uh, having you on this podcast uh, and uh, and um, I hope hopefully you've enjoyed our conversation uh and uh so all all was left for me to say is uh stay weird and keep it signal thank you